Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 3rd, 2021, and everything seems to be changing in the world. Uh, in many ways, uh, 2020 was a year uh, of, of, of profound change, and well, a, a time where we rethought everything from... Uh, the idea of reality to the idea of normality. So today is a good time to talk about what it means or what it can and should and shouldn't mean to be normal. Uh, my guest today, Roy Richard Grinker, is the author of a new book, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Uh, Richard, uh, it seems to me that the 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 key word in your in your title, is, at least in the subtitle, is stigma. How culture created the stigma of mental illness. Uh, you're both an anthropologist and an expert on on mental health, on mental disease. Um, what in your mind does stigma mean? Is there a difference between stigma and illness? A stigma is when you have a kind of discredited identity, um, shame, uh, something that attaches to you, that brands you. In fact, the word stigma comes from the ancient Greek word meaning a branding on the body uh, as of a criminal or a slave. Uh, the word is stigmata. So it's this kind of label and branding that, that can follow you. And it makes life very difficult for people who are ill, whether they're ill with a mental illness or a physical illness. Uh, for at least a couple of centuries, people have said, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if, if when you were sick, all you had to worry about was being sick and not what people thought about your sickness. Does your work, do you see your work in this book in the continuation of historians like Michel Foucault, who saw mental illness as a construction, particularly of capitalism? Yeah, the work is definitely um, informed by the perspective of Foucault, uh, which is, uh, you know, obviously has many meanings, uh, but Foucault was interested in how institutions formed because he wanted to know how they became this place in which we exert so much power. Michel Foucault wasn't particularly interested in institutions as institutions. He was interested in them because they could illustrate for us the way in which power is exercised in capitalism. And so he looked at prisons and he looked at hospitals and he looked at insane asylums. And when we look at insane asylums, we see the birth of psychiatry, but we also see the birth of mental illnesses. Mental illnesses and stigma therefore, therefore are born together. The history of mental illness is obviously um, uh, your academic and intellectual focus, but it goes deeper than that, uh, Richard. Your uh, great-grandfather uh, was one of the first uh, 
neuroscientists, I think in Vienna, your grandfather was taught by Freud. Um, to what extent do you see the history of uh, psychology or, 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 or the study of the mind and, 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 and the Freudian elements of that as being, to, to borrow a word from Foucault, part of the, the discourse of capitalism? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting question um, that I've struggled with, you know, all my life, why I didn't become a psychiatrist. Uh, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, even my wife uh, are psychiatrists. And um, it was something that I was interested in, you know, more at a critical level, trying to understand how it was that psychiatry actually became almost a form of governance, you know, Foucault has this book, Discipline and Punish. Well, psychiatry disciplined and psychiatry punished. It also tried to help people, but at the same time, it marked people as sick who often didn't conform to societal expectations. You know, it was not that long ago that homosexuality was officially, according to the American Psychiatric Association, a mental illness. And so um, my interest is really in how different kinds of discourses, whether it's scientific discourses or you know, any other kind of discourse, um, acts on us to um, both empower and disempower us. And mental illness terms have often done that. It's interesting that you present your choice to study anthropology as a form of rebellion, a rebellion against your family, a rebellion against your wife, a rebellion against the structures of intellectual power that you grew up with. Uh, to what extent has that decision to study anthropology provided you with an alternative, again, and I use this word carefully, discourse uh, to Western rationalism, to the Enlightenment? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm, um, I'm anti-psychiatry, uh, and I wouldn't say that um, I was rebelling uh, completely and certainly not rebelling against my wife. You don't <laughs> look like a, re a rebel, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. But you know, in a lot, in large part, I saw my father and my grandfather as, as and my great great grandfather too, though I never met him, as giants in their field, and I didn't want. But to they were. Them. I mean, I, I would. Yeah. Uh, your your grandfather has a long Wikipedia entry, and uh, he is indeed one of the giants of of twentieth century um, um, uh, psychi uh, psychiatry but I was insecure. I mean, he would say, you're gonna be a psychiatrist and you're gonna be even better than I am. Did he and put you on the couch, Richard? Oh yes. You know, typical childhood analyzing dreams in the morning at breakfast. Anyway, <laughs> you know, the thing is that um, I wanted to stake my own um, way in life. And um, when I got to college, I, I did two things. I took an anthropology class uh, and I took some hard science classes and I, just did terribly at the science classes. And I thought maybe I'm sabotaging myself because I don't think I'm incapable, but why am I not getting good grades in these things? And then I had this wonderful course in anthropology and I realized, wow, I could actually do psychology or even psychiatry and not be a clinician, but look at things across cultures. And the more I traveled as I became an anthropologist to um, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, to um, South Korea, to India, to other places in the world, um, I started to see that 
there was really a need for people to do more research on mental health across cultures. What kind of different conditions are there that are culturally variable? What kind of different conditions are there that are, are treatable or untreatable? Are there societies in which mental illnesses are not stigmatized, but where some are and, and some aren't? And then you come back to the United States and you see everything in a new light. And it's really amazing. Um, I think you learn quickly as an anthropologist that the ultimate goal of going somewhere else to some foreign culture is not to uh, just learn about them, but it's to be able to have gone so you can do the return. You can come back and see things differently. It's interesting that uh, we had uh, James Sussman, the anthropologist of work on the show recently, who like you is quite critical of conventional notions of capitalism and work and return to Africa to rethink the very idea of work. I'm particularly interested in this relationship between um, capitalism and mental health. At the end of the 19th century, of course, Max Weber wrote his remarkable book, uh, The Protestant Ethic and the Origins of Capitalism, in which he located the origins of capitalism in the mind of the Protestant, suggesting in many ways that it was a form of mental illness. Um, this has been very influential, not only with Freud, but with many Marxist and non-Marxist economists. You suggest that when it comes to what you call uh, the way in which cult culture creates the stigma of mental illness, uh, capitalism is one of your three pillars. Um, can we go back to the Reformation, Richard? Can we see capitalism itself and this obsession with hard work as a form of redemption, uh, as a form of um, uh, religious salvation, as the foundations of capitalism? I, I think so. Um, and, and we can go back and see the origins of our um, thoughts about mental illness back there. I mean, you know, when, when the... the um, Protestants that Weber was talking about were working as hard as possible to get as much money as possible um, to prove that they were the elect of God. Um, they were not really feeling better. Didn't make them feel better to have a lot more money. It, they were constantly anxious. They were greedy for virtue, weren't they, Richard? Like all Americans. It was religious anxiety. But the fascinating thing about Weber, and it's amazing you brought him up, is he really doesn't you know, say that religion caused capitalism or, or, the, or that capitalism caused the religion. He says that they, they worked together. They just resonated. They were complementary. They, they, what he called an elective affinity. Um, and I think that's what we see um, in the rise of mental illness too, which is that as the ideal person shifted, you know, no longer somebody maybe, you know, working for a subsistence on a um, uh, economy on a farm, but somebody who's supposed to maximize and get as much as possible. When we created in Western civilization, the ideal person as a maximizer, as a producer, that's when the person who was sick and dependent on others became someone we would stigmatize. And it's interesting with Weber, of course, that not only did he write about this stuff, but he was afflicted through his tragically short life with mental illness himself. And he was an obsessive hard worker. He not only uh, invented the very field of sociology, but did other remarkable feats, which didn't make him happy. Uh, at one point, um, Richard, in, in Weber's Protestant ethic, he suggests that 
the Protestant Reformation turned the monasteries inside out, that we all became monks in capitalism. Could it be argued that this combination of Protestantism and capitalism has turned the world into a giant uh, psychiatric office, a place where we're all continually on the couch? <laughs> well, I, I've never thought of it that way. Um, but you know what has happened with over the past couple of centuries is not just that um, psychiatry has all made us kind of subjects to the governance of a particular set of professional experts, the, you know, the, the psychiatrists, the psychologists, but that medicine has done this too. Well, you know, in social science, we'd call this medicalization. You know, in, over the course of the last couple of centuries, we've just increasingly started to see ourselves through the lens of medicine, whether that's psychiatry or obstetrics. I mean, we, we've made childbirth almost entirely a uh, a medical thing, right? Something which, you know, isn't necessarily medical, but we've treated it that way because it's in, you know, everybody's born in a hospital, almost everybody. Um, we've created certain body mass measures. Uh, we, to account for obesity, we have certain measures that count for hypertension. And when we see ourselves through that kind of technical lens, I think we're all a little disempowered. I think we all become prisoners. We actually had a show about uh, obesity with Robert Palberg yesterday in which he describes that medicalization when it comes to the way in which we eat. Um, and uh, last week we had um, a journalist on the show talking about this relationship between childbirth and the breakdown in, in, in our COVID times. This is of course the second pillar in your argument. You suggest that this medicalization of culture of the world has contributed enormously to mental illness. What has COVID taught us about this, Richard? How has it compounded this? How has this brought this crisis to a boil? Well, I think this is an amazing moment right now uh, because it's a global crisis. Everyone's affected. No one's immune to the stresses of this pandemic. And I think that it actually holds out some promise for us to understand that to be suffering emotionally right now isn't a sign of weakness. Um, this is one of the things in Nobody's Normal that I stress over and over again in relationship to wars, that when we're in wartime, everybody is stressed. And so during wars, the stigma of mental illnesses tends to lessen. Well, practically every major political leader in the world now has called COVID a war. Yeah, I, I want to get, uh, war is the third pillar and I want to get to that, but let's focus on the medical establishment and what you call this medicalization of, um, of, of, of mental illness. Uh, we talked about your wife earlier, Joyce C. Chung. She works at the NIMH. And we had Bob Kolker on the show a few weeks ago. You, of course, know his book, Hidden Valley Road, about one particular family that was afflicted tragically with, with mental illness. Um, he doesn't, and, and I don't mean that, that to blame your wife in any way for this, but he doesn't give the NIMH a great review in his book in terms of their treatment of mental illness. To what extent are the the formal institutions of medicine in this country, the NIMH and others, responsible for this medicalization of mental illness? 
Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, there is no evidence that uh, focusing on the brain and neural pathways and brain imaging and thinking of mental illnesses as brain disorders has, has ever reduced the stigma of mental illnesses. But that's what the NIH has tried to do. You know, they're trying to make everything medical, biological, molecular, and so on. But whether it's in the United States or anywhere else in the world, when we can see mental illnesses as the product of more than just some kind of biological dysfunction, but of the result of a person's whole life and experience and the context in which they live, including the history, historical moments and the cultures in which they live, then we tend to be more accepting and understanding of mental illnesses because we don't see the person as damaged. You know, so I'm very much, um, you know, pro uh, scientific research on the brain, but I don't know that that's going to end up reducing stigma. I mean, we even have we have a a, a, a a method of dealing with treatment-resistant depression where you react directly on the brain. It's called electroconvulsive therapy. And that mm. remains you know, one of the most frightening and stigmatized of all therapies, despite its efficacy. Kolka's book is also, like yours, a, a, a history of our treatment of mental illness. Uh, you, and I'm sure this is a good uh, cocktail party joke on your part, you even have a condition named after, not you personally, but your family. There's the the Grinker, and 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 correct me if I if I pronounce this wrong, myelinopathy, uh, which I think your your grandfather or your great grandfather discovered. Um, what has been the history, in your view, of uh, of mental illness? Uh, is it a, a traditional American narrative? Are we getting closer to the truth? Or are we spinning our wheels when it comes to defining and treating this condition? We're always moving and changing and creating new frameworks that we think are going to be helpful. And that we're very, very well-meaning mental health professionals think are going to be helpful. But that doesn't mean truth, right? Something that's helpful isn't necessarily... So that, that, that's your polite way of, of saying that your wife and her colleagues are, are not making much progress. Well, no, no, let me give you an example. Asperger's, okay? Asperger's disorder, Asperger's syndrome was considered to be, you know, a quote unquote real disorder. It was in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders from 1994 to 2013. Why'd they get rid of it? They didn't get rid of Asperger's because somebody discovered something new and said, ah, we know this, this condition doesn't work. They got rid of it because we didn't need it anymore. When Asperger's was first put in place, it was because parents and others demanded a less stigmatizing term for autism. And it served the function of suggesting at the time that autism wasn't just uh, a category for people who were intellectually disabled and needed lifelong care, that there were other people who had autism, but they weren't that as, uh, uh, as involved. But over time, we've changed autism to become a spectrum. And now that it's a spectrum and it's less stigmatized, we don't need Asperger's anymore. It did its job. It was a cultural phenomenon that did its job. It was a framework. And I don't care whether we're talking about cancer or, a, or COVID or any kind of medical condition. They are all frameworks that help us to comprehend somebody's suffering and to drive treatments. Sometimes those treatments work, sometimes they don't. 
Sometimes they stigmatize, sometimes they don't, but the, the, it's not about developing something true. It's about developing something that alleviates sickness. And you know this better than most, not only professionally, but personally, you had a well-publicized, or you have a well-publicized daughter who, who, who has autism. You wrote about it in, in, in your previous book, Unstrange Minds. What did that experience teach you, which traditional academics perhaps don't get, that personal experience of having a daughter with autism? Well, it's difficult to be studying a subject that uh, is so personal and mixing the personal and the professional. But what it does is it helps you to see the perspective of the other, of the person who's actually suffering. You'd be amazed at how many people write about people who are ill, uh, but don't really interview the ill. You know, you're not getting their voice. You're not hearing about that. And the other thing that's really important is I didn't start to see my daughter, you know, only as somebody who is defined by autism that autism is one aspect of her being, but it's not what defines her completely. Whereas if I didn't have that personal experience, I'd probably be just sort of in a silo somewhere, just studying autism and not the full complex life of a human being and how they change over time. Yeah, and I think that really added to, to, to the book. We had um, Kenneth Rosen on the show recently. He has a new book out called Troubled, which is the way in which troubled teenagers are institutionalized in the system and certainly uh, the people running that rotten system could do with uh, reading your book and, and, and taking a much more sympathetic attitude to troubled teens. Uh, let's move on to war, um, uh, Richard. You, you say both in metaphorical and in actual terms, um, uh, this notion of normalcy is like a war. Uh, you wrote a book, War Neuroses in Africa, a few years ago. Um, oh, sorry, I have to correct. That was my grandfather. Oh, that was your grandfather. I'm getting you see this is again this Freudian thing of you're all named the same thing and you're all writing about the same thing. So right. it's easy to fall into these traps. Yeah. Well, your grandfather wrote it and I'm sure you read it. Uh, <laughs> we had Margaret Macmillan on the show a few months ago who has a one, you know, the distinguished Canadian historian who has a new war, a book, not a new war, a new book out called War, which is a history of war. Uh, but you suggest that much of the, the mental illness in America in the 20th century is due to the war and the experiences men in particular have in war. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, I think that it's important to understand, you know, how culturally different things were um, in previous times. You know, I have an epigraph to my book, which is that uh, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And Simon Winchester was on your show and he said, the future is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Um, when you go back to World War I, um, the mental health professions, really psychiatry, it was just for the asylum. You know, this, it, it, psychiatry was for the people who couldn't function at all in society. And so the, the first world war was a real challenge to doctors who said, wait a minute, we got all these people who are suffering emotionally, but they don't belong in asylums. They're just suffering from maybe hysteria, but that was too feminized a term, so they changed it to shell shock. And they developed the ability to treat people in ways that didn't, you know, confine them for the rest of their lives in some kind of deplorable institution. And the same thing happened in World War II as well. 
And so instead of seeing mental illness as a gradual progression of trying to get better and better um, over time, uh, my book argues that the history of mental illness and psychiatry in this country has been one of short bursts of great progress during wars and then long periods of forgetting where there's often a regression into the past. But I would um, venture to say that every single listener to this show has had a medical procedure or taken a drug at some point in their life that came out of the military. If you- Well, the internet was created by the military, so we wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't well, for them. There you go. I mean, it, it just, I mean, take something like um, transgender, uh, like gender affirming surgery for someone who's trans. How did those surgical procedures get developed? It was in World War I when doctors in England developed the techniques to reconstruct genitalia in soldiers who had had um, major damage uh, uh, from, from ammunition. Uh, treatments for malaria, uh, HIV research, you know, name it, uh, comes out of the military. I'm not saying I'm a fan of military or war by any stretch of the imagination, but we have to see the history for what it is and where those changes came from. You mentioned Simon Winchester, uh, kindly uh, watch some of the other shows, uh, Richard. Uh, Simon was on the show talking about his new book, Land, which he dedicated to Chief Standing Bear. He's not an anthropologist like you, but he's looking back before the industrial age as well to make sense of what we've done wrong in terms of capitalism. As I said, James Sussman's been on the show, very distinguished anthropologist. I know, I'm sure you know his work. Uh, we had the, uh, the, the Harvard uh, expert on exercise, Daniel Lieberman, who returned to Africa to make sense of what um, traditional uh, African tribes, how they exercised. It seems as if there's an increasing fashion for anthropology and for anthropologists like yourself and, 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 um, and Sussman and Lieberman to return to the pre-industrial age. What does that teach us about the future? I, I'm not getting, I'm, I'm not trying to trap you into idealizing in a Rousseauan way um, uh, pre-industrial man, but what can we learn about the pre-industrial, pre-modern age to confront our demon of uh, uh, mental illness, of trying to correct this uh, sort of disease of normalcy that we seem to have fallen into? Well, what we gain is perspective. What we gain is an appreciation that the way we do things, where we live, isn't the only way or the right way. It's that culture creates it. And we convince ourselves that what we're doing is natural or right. I mean, this is the, the essence of anthropology is really to denaturalize things, you know, and to say, well, look, here's a person with schizophrenia. How would they be experiencing their life in the United States? versus how they're living their lives in the Kalahari Desert. I mean, bring up Sussman, I, I can talk about the Kalahari Desert, you know, where, where, where he's done work, where I've done work. Um, and uh, in one place, you can have two very different cultural treatments are, uh, of uh, the same condition. So let me tell you a story about this man named Tomzo, who has delusions, he hears angry voices. He walks 12 miles uh, once a month to get his antipsychotic medicine. He goes to a Norwegian NGO 
at that NGO, at that clinic, he's got schizophrenia and it says in his files, schizophrenia, and he gets this antipsychotic. Whether he's got symptoms or not, he's got schizophrenia. But only 12 miles away in his village, unless he's got symptoms, he's not sick. And at any rate, people understand that his illness isn't his fault, that the spirits that are malevolent, that had um, come to the village, landed in him randomly and are afflicting him, and they're not his fault. He is not seen to be responsible for this sickness. So you could just go 12 miles away and you have a totally different cultural apparatus for dealing with a condition. One medicalized, the other not. Anthropology then is the new black. It's the thing that seems to be allowing us to rethink some of the biggest problems in our age from capitalism to the idea of work to our notions of mental illness. Uh, Roy Richard Grinker's Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness is a wonderful read. It's very personal, very accessible. Thank you. Can be written, uh, can be read with uh, uh, some of the other bestsellers on this subject, particularly, I think, Bob Kolker's Hidden Valley Road. Uh, you're stuck in Washington, D.C. It's snowing and you can't go out anyway because of COVID, Richard. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, I would love to, I think if I can show this, um, I would love to recommend this book. Uh, it's called A Good Time to Be Born by Perry Class. Uh, Perry Class is uh, both an amazing writer and a uh, pediatrician. Um, and she's just written this you know, magnificent, uh, masterful history of uh, the reductions of infant mortality. Um, I don't know uh, how many people just uh, you know, appreciate what the experience is of somebody even a uh, hundred years ago of expecting that a child might die, you know, expecting that a child might be on the brink of death. We, we don't have that, that worry as much anymore. And it's a remarkable um, story of progress. Very different from my book, which is more of a roller coaster of some progress, some setbacks, some progress, some setbacks. Uh, but I really, I really recommend it. Uh, Perry Class, K-L-A-S-S. Well, Perry, if you're watching this, we'll have to get you on the show. Uh, Roy Richard Grinker, again, congratulations on a wonderful new book. And I will look forward to having you on the show in the not too distant future to talk about how we fixed the idea of normality. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.